and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today we're going to speak about the geopolitics of energy transition. As you know, energy transition, climate change and all those related topics, they are big deal at the moment because uh, of the weather, because of the climate change uh, implications that we see in practical life. So I'm interested in why geopolitics is associated with energy transition. My guest today is Daniel Shorten. Hello. Hi, thanks. Nice to be here. Daniel Shorten is a visiting assistant professor in the science, technology and environmental policy area at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, University of Minnesota. Dr. Shorten specializes in geopolitics of energy transition with a broader interest in the governance of sustainability. And there is one publication I would like to mention, and it's Edward Elgar Handbook on the Geopolitics of Energy Transition, which is a great publication about how geopolitics interact with energy transition. So let's start with the first question, Daniel. And I'm actually interested, how does the transition to renewable energy reshape the geopolitic power, the struggle of the powers, of the global powers, and also in the regional context or dimension. So let's answer the question, how and, and why to associate geopolitics with energy transition? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, it's also a broad one. Um, let me say, so the, you know, the, the relationship between energy and let's say the wealth and power of states and, and fueling economic growth, but also the, the oil used in the military, uh, let's say, there's, there's a quite a clear connection. And what we will see with this energy transition is that existing patterns where energy resources are located, the typical choke points of oil distribution across the globe, they're all going to be changing when we move towards renewable energy, as they have very different geographic, but also technical or infrastructural characteristics. And then this raises the question, if we go through this transition, you know, what will we then uh, how would that then affect the energy security implications of countries, industrial policies, but also, let's say, patterns of cooperation and conflict between them? Uh, that was kind of the uh, the main question that you want to ask. And so, by and large, and this is this is quite a bit. We we roughly have eight expectations based on these geotechnical characteristics of renewable energy or more sustainable forms of of, of energy. Um, I can list them briefly if you want, because it's it, it <laughs> you could fill a whole lecture by going into each of them. Please, um, please. So one of the main ones that we always talk about, of course, is that renewables are relatively abundantly available and they're replenishable. They're quite widespread. And it's hardly a part of the globe that is not really uh, covered with some form of renewable energy, it's wind, solar, biomass, whatever. The idea is that this changes the global pattern from a more oligopolistic setting, you know, where some countries have resources and the others do not. And then you have these dependencies and the typical play of, of you know, uh, consumer countries trying to get access to these resources, etc. To a setting where most countries can source their own needs um, and this kind of creates a more of an equal uh, uh, basis. That doesn't mean that everybody can, you know, surface their own needs. If you're a small country like the Netherlands and, and very densely populated, it will be difficult. It's easier for Sweden, let's say. Um, but it's still, it's more of a uh, an, an open-ended, sort of more equal relationship between producers and consumers. It's more like a competitive market setting. Um, essentially, countries have a make-or-buy decision. You know, what do you want to make yourself and what do you want to import? And imports are cheaper. Um, a second thing which we typically focus on is the more electric nature of distribution. Most uh, renewable energy sources are translated into or transformed into uh, electricity. So no longer the, the solids, the liquids and, and gases of coal, oil and, and natural gas. Uh, and electricity suffers from long distance losses. It's very unlikely that you, you know, make an electricity grid across the entire globe. So you would, you would expect that these electricity grids span a continent perhaps, but not much more. They can, of course, be interlinked across continents. But in principle, you have a more of a regionalization compared to a global oil or an LNG type of trade. Um, so, so that brings a, a specific geographical scope with it and, and dependencies with that. Then there is the uh, the typical one where everybody seems to be very, uh, there's much discussed nowadays, is the critical materials that are required to build solar panels or wind turbines. Um, 
The debate is, of course, very similar to getting access to oil. How do we get access to all these types of resources like nickel and lithium and cadmium and all that? Um, just to make sure that we can build all those technologies. Um, we can go into that a bit later because there's quite a bit to be discussed, whether this is as serious a threat as, as it seems that it is. Um, a fourth one and fifth one, perhaps two in one, is, is the idea of that the energy transition being a, uh, let's say, a force of creative destruction, basically that process where on the one hand we see new competition for uh, clean energy technologies and, and, and markets to sell them in. Uh, I think you can see that China is relatively dominant in, in the electricity chain in, in that one at the moment. Um, and then there's the other side of the, of the, this, uh, of this coin. And that is, of course, the stranded assets and fossil fuel, let's say, uh, exporters, which are worrying about, you know, where they're going to get their money from and what is their position in international relations if, if they have less income. So this is already five. Um, number six will be a decentralization of energy generation. That is not always immediately associated with global politics, perhaps more with local politics. Uh, but still, the more we generate at home or locally, it will have impact on the way uh, energy companies to whom they are selling. It becomes more of a business to business instead of business to household type of market. Taxation of money or, or income, state income, um, uh, things are going to change. And the less, the more we produce locally, the less we have to import. It could have an impact on uh, let's say, uh, the amount of energy transported across the globe. Um, then we go to seven and eight. So that will be, uh, I think, uh, one of them will be these technologies, which are essentially clean fossil fuel technologies like CCS or more energy efficiency or, or going more with nuclear. You know, what is their role? That's a bit more difficult. You know, if you're critical, these are just means that stall the transition, slow it down because it locks you into a uh, let's say uh, uh, if you take hydrogen for example moving from, uh, from 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 gray to blue to green hydrogen if we don't really get green hydrogen up and running then we're going to be stuck with, uh, with with blue hydrogen and ccs for a long time and how green is it and at what point are for example the uh, the carbon storage uh, uh, facilities full uh, these type of worries um and finally you know this energy transition is not going to go equally fast across the globe. So there's, it's, we call it a multi-speed transition. Some countries are moving faster than others. For some, it really is a win-win situation where they are you know, currently importers, becoming exporters, and they also have benefits in terms of not just energy security, but also you know, the, the revenues. Um, it's good for local air pollution. It's good for the climate. Uh, but this is not the case for every country. You know, other countries, they may lose. But other, even those countries which are currently energy importers may not necessarily become huge exporters either. So it's it's a, it's an issue where a lot of academics spend time on, on the just transition, how to make this a transition for everybody and not just for the rich. Yeah, this is both within countries, within groups of civilians, you know, richer people can afford solar panels more easily than poorer people and benefit from them, et cetera. But also globally, you know, is this is there a possibility for leapfrogging for 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 developing nations or not, or is it just losing out on the next sort of uh, energy, you know, revolution or transition? Yeah. So this is in a in a very quick overview of eight major uh, clusters, which I I like to always you know mention up front to structure this <laughs> somewhat because it's a very complex issue. Absolutely, and uh, Daniel, may I ask you? That was very interesting to listen to those eight points. Which of those eight points do you think is, is the most critical to research or to push a little bit forward? Because we are either behind or maybe there is not much research about that particular topic. So what would be your opinion about? I think there's plenty of attention to the critical materials at the moment. So so that does... You know, so it doesn't really deserve that much attention. The same with the issue of the uh, industrial change or the competition. There's, there's a lot going on there. I think we may need to put a bit more effort into what I see on the long term to be the real changing factors. And basically the first two things I mentioned, the shift from a world where some have and others don't in terms of resources to one where everybody has some degree of uh, renewable energy. Um, and this really reshapes the nature. It kind of takes the sting out of, uh, of, 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 of let's say, the political, political uh, nature of, of energy. 
I think that deserves a bit more attention. What is the world like if you have, if every country could, let's say, for 60 or 80 percent surface in their own needs? Yeah, then energy becomes much less of a of a political means for pressure. It's not a it's not the energy weapon anymore that it used to be. So that is, I think, a huge one. And we don't really simulate or 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 or, or check the the long term implications of that just yet. And the same with the electric nature. You know, having a grid and operating this together, it's a bit similar, of course, like a like a gas pipeline eh, that that spans several countries. But in many ways, you know. Electricity has more stringent managerial requirements. I mean, it, it moves almost at, at the speed of light. <laughs> so, if something goes wrong in one end of Europe, you know, you have a blackout at the other end. And how do you divide, or, or how do you um, assign property rights, decision rights, and who gets to have energy first under what conditions? It's a much tighter form of cooperation because you can't simply store it that easily. You know, you have alpine lakes, sure, you can do something there, but it's not like natural gas, which you can just—it's easier to to manage, or or oil, which is very much easy to store. You know, so those are the things which I always feel like these are the core issue, and I think we are not really focusing on them just yet because you know we're still living in a world that is inherently fossil fuel based even though we see an ever increasing speed of of energy transition if you go out there now and i would say if you go out into the world in 10 years from now you still live in a world that is probably 70% fossil fuel based and we we don't and so what we focus on is of course what is going on with the uh, like i said the uh, the critical materials how to build all this capacity where we have now the onshoring by companies of, of supply chains. So the, the the actual current issues that we see uh, with, with regard to the energy transition, but not so much the longer term effects. You mentioned fossil fuels. So let's touch a little bit strategic geopolitical consequences of countries that are at the moment, they are exporting fossil fuels, like for instance, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Russia, you know, Canada, United States. In terms of geopolitics, you know, how do you see the situation with those countries? Yeah, this is you touch upon a very complex <laughs> issue. So uh, there's a couple of things I want to say. I think if I would go to a meeting uh, over there right now, I think they're still discussing, and this is a bit troublesome, the same things that they were discussing perhaps 20 years ago, you know, diversification. And it's it hasn't happened sufficiently yet by any means, and so the the idea or the the stigma that they have in the sense of they you know they pay Westerners or others to think and they pay Indian <laughs> workers to work, and, and and what are they doing themselves? What is the, you know their societal model which is based on these resource rents? Um, you don't see enough movement that they're really bracing for impact of the energy transition. And the transition is, in a way, a threat to their way of life as it currently is. So I can imagine if, you know, if you go to the COP or you go to the European Union and, and you see all these people talking about moving towards the transition, that the alarm bells are somewhat going off. At the same time, I don't think they, especially the Middle East, if you look at the Gulf countries, I don't think they are really all that worried. Um, I think they're mostly worried, you know, let me finish that argument first. They're not really worried because they can produce oil, let's say, at the globally cheapest uh, way possible. What is? I mean, their production costs, I think, are somewhere between $10 and $20 per barrel. It's, it's hardly anything. So they are the last one that go out of business if you would have a complete uh, global transformation to a net zero type of, of world. And still, there's oil products which are not based for energy or, or or transportation, right? So you have your paints or your plastics and all that. So they might still be able to sell all that oil for 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 for, for those commodities. And hence, there, I think I'm not quite sure whether their way of life specifically is threatened uh, as much as all the other producers which are above those twenty or thirty dollars uh, per barrel of production costs. So not 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 the actual market price. I mean, they are going to go out of business first. And the more they go out of business, the longer the others, you know, can sell what is remaining. So I understand that perhaps the sense of urgency is not that high for them, um, unless the pressures, you know, for reasons of climate change abatement are getting more and more. And it is considered to be a, 
that's a moral improper con- way of conduct if you keep on producing. But if they can store most of that CO2, they may be able to continue their business model for quite a while. Um, having said that, I do think in the long term, you know, you see two things happening. Less and less oil means less and less revenues for these countries. And you can't really say for sure whether this is going to have a good or a bad impact. I mean, will this push them to diversify their economy? They essentially have three strategies. You, know, you can you can stall the oil end game you know, as long as possible and earn as much money as possible. You can diversify the economy. Uh, this can be any sector. It could be you know financial markets, planes, whatever, or renewables. It could also be that they go into uh, clean fossil fuels for as long as possible, right? So, so, so there, there, there are some options, but by and large, you would expect these countries not to earn the same amount of revenues that they do currently. It's, it's hard to imagine them earning more when they're selling less and less, you know, gas and oil. Um, but if they earn less, this will urge them to diversify. And the question is, will they succeed? Yeah. You need to find a niche in this global economy in order to, you know, export something to earn some revenues, basically. And they are up against, you know, the China. Uh, Europe, North America, rest of Asia. So there's stiff competition. Um, if they manage to succeed, this could lead to a transformation also of the societal model, you know, which becomes a bit more like what we would Western would call democratic, egalitarian, away from the petrol state structures. That would be a positive outcome. It could also mean more likely once you know the petrol state loses its dollars, in order to pay off the rest of the population and to keep the uh, the levels of uh, you know, uh, of living uh, the same standard of living, you might just have a violent revolution on your hands, and it's really hard to predict. It's really hard, you know. This is this is one of those things. Yeah, you just don't know where in which way the pendulum swings, and uh, uh, if you have if a lot of young people become unemployed. Usually, that in social science is a is a critical indicator of things going bad in a country. <laughs> then there's a lot of potential for revolutions. They will go out into the street. Uh, if that happens, if they can't find sufficient employment for for uh, uh, for their people, then then it's probably going in in a bad way. No. When we speak about fossil fuels, we we must mention big corporations dealing with oil and gas. And those corporations, they represent sort of international actors in international relations, quite significant, especially if you go to Africa, Asia, but also in European Union. Do you think that in terms of energy transition, this will change? And can we predict or can we maybe calculate with some, let's say, renewable energy corporations that will have similar impact as the oil and gas corporations? Let me say, perhaps up front, I think the main oil and gas companies, uh, they have kind of made a decision. Some of them are just continuing on as oil and gas and see that as this is what we do. And others have been rebranding themselves as energy companies. So also to include new forms of energy, potentially they might tap into into the future. Um, But of course, there's, there's now some stiff competition from the renewable energy sector as well. No, but if you think that they will maintain the same role and function that they currently have in in global in the global energy trade, I would expect this to diminish. Um, I for simple reasons that the amount of energy, the actual amount of energy being transported, is likely to be far less in a world that becomes more and more self reliant, you know, in terms of domestic production, and so they don't play the role of the middleman anymore. And it's different if you are a let's say a Vestas or, or Siemens, when you, you supply wind turbines, because you, you actually build those things. And after that, they, you know, they run for hopefully 30 years. <laughs> and then, and, and before you have to replace them. And, and so it's not this continuous stream of logistics of oil and gas shipments. Um, and you can't cut it off. You know, at some point you it's installed, right? So it's, it's, it's part of another company operating that. Um, so I do think, you know, energy is anyway, it's, it's always going to be very critical for, for a nation's economy. But I don't think the companies will muster the same amount of muscle as they currently have, nor will they have the same position in international trade. Also, because they're, I don't think the margins and their profits and hence the money that they have to spend on lobbying, you know, will be of the same degree. Um, you could even argue that the more and more, uh, 
you know, decentral generation we have when we have, because you also, you know, the transition is not in first, you know, you add new sources of energy to the existing ones. So it's it's no it's no longer just the from moving from one to the next. You add up, you have more and more uh, potential companies uh, entering the market as well. So it, it shakes things up. Yeah? It, it creates new competition, and who knows how much we will eventually be able to produce. Um, I don't think for wind, but for solar and for other, how much we can actually do more locally rather than being reliant on on on, on global chains. There is also. A hot topic in the energy field, the Arctic. Let's connect the Arctic and the energy transition in sort of geopolitical wrapping. It's this very interesting. So from from a, um, I think the Arctic and the grab for resources into areas where we used to not go as easily is simply it's part of a larger phenomenon. It's it's a you know, we're using up natural resources faster than we actually, you know, than they actually naturally replenish themselves in a way. And in that sense, this is much broader than just the energy transition phenomenon. And what you see, I mean, it's a claiming of resources, a claiming actually of space at times, um, also for military or other purposes. If you think about the South China Sea or perhaps even the Arctic, that is in a way inflammatory <laughs> because what you take, I cannot have. And if you put your flag somewhere, that is a clear signal of, of, uh, of where you say, okay, so we we claim this for our own. The sad thing here, in many ways, is is that we are, in, you know, we instead of trying to work out ways as a global community. I mean, if if I'm if I would be a more naive idealist type of person, I would say, how can we not slowly but surely recognize that the globe is final? You know. And we need to somehow find a way to you know, share these type of resources that we currently would claim are nobodies, right? Um, but if you're realistic, and if you think about geopolitics, then you realize also that you know we live in a world that is globally fragmenting. We are getting towards more of a multipolar world order, and you see a, a, a lessening of all of the international institutions and, and their ability to to manage global conflicts. And I think if you look at Ukraine now in the Middle East, and perhaps in the future we have something in Taiwan, or we have something in, you know, in 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 Korea or in East Asia in general, then then we are not moving to a world where it will be easy to come to global agreements, and then it's more of a free for all and power, you know, might makes right in a way. Um, so I, I see this as as precursors of the way we are going to battle this one out. It's it's more of a grab everything that you can before it is finished rather than trying to cooperate and in, in, in get to a point where we could, you know, get to more of a sustainable economic solution. Um, and the, and the, when it comes to the energy transition, yeah, well, there is the issue of the rare materials, right, the critical materials, which are required. Um, if you have access to them, you can make the, you know, not just the resources, but also the processing facilities, the know-how and the capital for those processing facilities. Then you have then you're in an advantage. I mean, then you can make sure that your companies are able to produce and able to sell on global markets. Because for many of the current global competitors, whether it is China, US, EU, East Asia, other countries, Japan, and so on, um, cheap production is is of importance. Uh, So for them, access to these resources is is of economic interest. It's it's there. It's, they need to have it in order to sell it. And we can't all be export champions. You know, we can't all countries in the world be you know the main producers of these new technologies and benefit from it. And you see, if you look at the U.S. or the EU, very clearly that you know one aspect of this energy transition is not just energy security or air pollution or climate change. It's also about you know jobs and revenues. This is why we do it. We want to earn some money with it. And we can't all win. So yeah, access to these resources is going to be a matter of competition. Yeah. Even though, because we are now touching about the critical resources, uh, just to continue on on when we started at the beginning, it's a bit different though than, than this grab for oil and natural gas. Huh? Because you, on the one hand, like I said, you you install it and then it runs for thirty years. Yeah? So these resources are not a continuous flow up until the point that you basically have your capacity installed, then it's just replacement demand. That's what you do. 
The other is recycle, you know, re recycling or the circular economy type of concepts. How much can we then actually recycle? This may not be as lucrative now, uh, but you know, when 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 resources get scarce, <laughs> recycling becomes much more of an interesting. Uh, it becomes competitive in terms of prices. So there are ways to to go about that, and we we also still are, you know, we 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 always find that what's in the north of Sweden and in other areas, new areas to you know, um, mine these type of critical materials. And hence you go a bit back and forth whether actually the Arctic is profitable to go into or not when it comes to these critical materials. Because, yeah, it's not the easiest place to start mining, let me put it that way. When you mentioned critical materials, uh, I think from the geopolitical point of view, it is also important to think about alternatives. Like, for instance, we speak about China, Africa, and Arctic in terms of critical materials. But then we speak about China, Russia, possible some African countries. So in some way, do you think that we could expect even more geopolitical tensions, possible conflicts, because the mm -hmm. companies, the maybe some countries, they will not have any access to those critical materials unless they buy them from China, Russia, Africa, the Arctic. So in, in in some way, I think that energy transition has more dimensions. And mm -hmm. that critical material one, the people speak about it a lot because of the geopolitics that it brings. Perhaps two things to say, I think, in, in first instance. So, again, here, this scramble for resources is part of a bigger scramble of resources, not just the energy sector, but also for anything ICT-related, you know, lithium and batteries and all that, uh, and silicon and, and so on. So, so that is that is is part of a broader phenomenon. Um, in principle, I think what you will see because this what we call rare materials are technically not all that rare. It's just that we have been, you know, in the West, <laughs> closing a lot of mines because it's not a very attractive <laughs> job opportunity for most. Uh, so you could argue, yes, we will see an opening of of of, of new mines, which will may take you know a decade before they go up and running. Um, you could so that's one thing. You could argue also that you know, if China would use critical materials as a weapon, what does it do? You can use it for once, and then all the other countries will make sure it never happens in that same fashion again, or at least they're not going to be hit in the same fashion again. What does it do to Chinese? global reputation if they would do so um is this this is this the fate that awaits any chinese trading partner if you do it you know everybody thinks about oh they can cut you off yes they can cut you off for one conflict and then afterwards people will make preparations in a way what is perhaps more troublesome is that all this new type of resources could evoke new resource curses across a number of countries right um it's not to say that this is going to happen. You, you always have to leave, leave some room for agency. You know, countries are not stupid. <laughs> they they can manage uh, perhaps their resources in better ways and learn from past mistakes from other countries as well. Uh, but in principle, if you would start exporting and you'd be reliant on a lot of lithium or nickel or other type of, of, of exports, then, yeah, you could fall into that trap. And if you are not a strong state, then it will be difficult to withstand all types of foreign pressures, whether this is state or company, uh, uh, companies that are coming to you uh, wanting to trade or, or, or mine. Um, but that is a bit situational. On the other hand, I do think that the, the, the last decade, you know, Chinese actions under Xi Jinping have kind of shaken up the world a bit. There's a reason why companies are trying to onshore, at least diversify. They're no longer just happy or good, you know, think it's good enough to go with the cheapest source and then that's it. Man, and, and international law will protect us or something. There's a sense of realism coming back into the world and that and that any of these goods have a strategic value, um, but also only to a, a limited extent. And, and like you said, perhaps earlier, if I remember, you know, there are also possibilities for alternatives. It might not be the most efficient solar cell that you then have or wind turbine, but perhaps a second order thing, which is not which is not what you want. But in case of emergency, in case of cutoff, like we had now in Europe, you know, no Russian gas, suddenly all the LNG is also good, you know. So the so so I think we are moving towards a, a setting where 
the mining and, and is, is happening more and more in, in a diverse set of countries. And because they also see new opportunities for economic growth. I mean, if you look at Chile or the Congo or whatever you go, and these are new opportunities. And for them, it's also diversification, perhaps away from what they are you know, currently exporting. So there are also bright sides to it, not to overemphasize just the scramble for resources that is generally, I think, uh, going on. What about uh, when we have strategic alliances? We have some uh, groups like, you know, G7, maybe G20. We have some different uh, international sort of institutions, and they all have some aspects of energy transition. And my question is, do you think that these, those or these old structures will change? No, I do think from what from what I would say, if you look at, for example, the International Energy Agency, right? You know, they used to be very much focused on oil and natural gas and fossil fuels. And in the recent years, they have been paying a lot more attention to renewable energy. But their scope is somewhat limited. They don't cover the whole globe in terms of membership, right? So it's more an OECD club. Uh, in that sense, IRENA would be the one to step up because they have, uh, last time I checked, uh, I think more than 160 uh, member countries. So they are a better position to perhaps pick up a new role. What you, what I haven't seen really just yet is is I mean they're they're there for information sharing and 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 practical lessons and reports and that's the more neutral work right this is this is relatively the low hanging fruit for what you can pick up <clears throat> they are not yet institutes that would be able to mediate in let's say a particular renewable energy type of conflict they're not the law of the sea that that talks about the borders. Uh, from who can you know start digging somewhere or not, um, and and so that's still a bit missing, and I, I think I haven't really seen all that much movement. I mean, the UN has the Sustainable Development Goals, yeah, sure, but yeah. So in that sense, I think we have a long way to go, and and this is actually one of the other things for for what you said, mentioned earlier about fruitful future research. It's about these new global energy governance type of uh, um, institutions which have yet to fully emerge in a way. And I think for now, as we're still very much in a, in a fossil fuel world, you know, the OPEX and OECDs are, are going to retain their importance for the for the next decade, for, for sure. I mean, there's nothing really to, to, to replace that. And it's hard to imagine, you know, there's no... So, so small interest group, perhaps, that represents all renewable energy exporters or, or let's say technology exporters, or perhaps the critical materials exporters. They might form a new group of countries. You can, you can imagine that, but it's, it's not just at this moment, it's not happening. It's, it's, it does not really exist, right? Um, and the, and the, what is more worrying for me, Personally, is that I think if you go to a more fragmented global political uh, setting, I doubt the abilities of the WTO in order to deal with trade disputes. They are no longer, in let's say, that relevant in a, in a very politically fragmented world. What are they going to enforce, and how? You know, if half the world will will choose a Chinese model and the other half will choose a Western model, or whatever, and they anyway always. How many years does it take for them to rule by the time the damage is done? And and all these institutions, you do see that U.S. hegemony, or at least Western hegemony, is waning. And, and the conflicts that we see, are, I think, are an example of that. Countries see new opportunities for new alliances. And that is especially, um, you know, I think when you look at the energy transition, we are, when I talk about the, the beneficial effects, they're mostly towards the end of it. If you look at the coming next 10, 20 years, you're in the middle of this transition. This transition means change. It means changing energy and trade partners. It means you're not quite sure, you know, which countries, if, if you just pick a random country, what other countries are going to be your new partners that you want to develop relations with? Which other ones are going established relations are going to be more, you know, diminished, becoming less and less? And which one are just going to change? You know, similar relations, let's say, uh, you trade different things, so they are, so they remain important trading partners, but for different purposes. And you would need to develop all kinds of strategies 
you know, to deal with that. The EU might have to think about, you know, changing relationships with uh, the, the North America, sorry, North Africa, Middle East type of region. You don't want that region just to fall into the hands of, you know, let's say your geopolitical competitors. It's, it's, it's very simple. And I'm getting a bit off topic, but it's very simple. You know, you don't, if the US didn't want nuclear missiles on Cuba, you could ask, you could say the energy equivalent of that is you don't want a Chinese grid in North America, North Africa. <laughs> you want to be that connected to the European grid because you, you know, it's, it's, it's like potential export markets for solar products and everything, or, or, or you, you connect it. And the actual physical connection of an electricity wire is very much a, an actual, uh, yeah, like, like you, you're linking two countries together. Actually, physically, yeah. And there's more to it than that. I mean, it's it's not just an energy trade that goes on. It's usually a package deal. It's I mean, other trade matters. So it's it's whoever lives, whoever is there in, in North uh, uh, Africa, they're always going to be European neighbors, whatever they be called in a thousand years from now, you know. And so it's better to have good relations with your neighbors and, and prioritize, for example, that than than other things. But there's no coming back to earlier, there's no real institution at this point set up to mediate these type of interactions between the countries. Yeah, it's it's product, it's like information sharing and and, and, and reports, but uh, no UN type of equivalent. Yeah. We can continue in this answer or, or question by adding energy diplomacy as an element. Uh, when I spoke with my students, uh, sometimes mm-hmm. they, they told me stories like, how can a person who is negotiating, for instance, natural gas deal, also negotiate the renewables? You know, like, uh, is it even possible to do this? And the next is the energy diplomacy in terms of who and how is conducting this diplomacy in practical life, in, in, in real life. Because as you mentioned, we don't have something like renewable energy institution that covers energy agreements globally. So, mm-hmm. so the question is, you know, how that energy diplomacy can add the component of energy transition to it, so we can have more interaction internationally or in, in our regions. No, no, yeah, it's a good question. Well, I think the first one, when your students ask, how can you deal with gas and renewable energy at the same time, you know. I don't see much of a contradiction actually there. <laughs> if you're a company and you're dealing in both, you're going to be trading in both. I, I know from a lot of students, I mean, I teach also, you know, climate change policy and, and environmental stuff. And they're very, they're very idealistic. And then it's, it's renewables all the way and you should never touch fossil fuels at all. But the realism, you know, if you're realistic, you know, the world is based on fossil fuels at the moment. We can't do without it just yet. Um, no, I, I think, you know, if you look at this energy trade, you know, countries have always been, from a consumer perspective, the, the strategies have always been very similar. And then I will touch a bit on the companies. You know, as a country, you always wanted to have strategic reserves. You wanted to have, uh, let's say, diversification of the source, the uh, the origin, and where it comes from, and the, and, the, and the route, the transit routes. And you want to have a very diverse uh, p- portfolio eh, in terms of contracts, short-term, long-term contracts, but also whether you want to do bilateral business or via markets, via, via companies, right? This is the typical way to secure your, your energy, essentially. Um, I don't think this changes much, this essence changes much when we move towards, you know, renewable energy. And it will be a big, you know, amalgamation, you would say, a mix of, of company uh, uh, and 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 and, um, and and state type of contracts that we will see in the future. Perhaps there will be more emphasis on short term uh, because the fluctuations are no longer, the, let's say, the politically induced problems in the Middle East uh, for supply disruptions, but much more the variations in in weather in weather patterns. Right, and so it's more about availability at the right time rather than access to foreign resources in in, in that sense. Um, but the energy diplomacy. You know, they. I think if you look at how the EU is doing it, and they want to export, let's say the um, the energy transition or the Green Deal across the globe, because in principle we all need to do it. If if only Europe is going green, <laughs> then the world is not safe, right? It, it, it doesn't help in terms of climate. That that energy diplomacy, I think, serves these two purposes. On the one hand, 
it is a way to tackle climate change. On the other, it is a way to sell stuff. Yeah? And whether we sell gas or, or pipeline or technologies or whatever, or we do something with renewables, is in that sense somewhat uh, similar. Um, with the added benefit, of course, that if you sell renewables, you, you kind of show this political leadership in, in, in these climate matters as well. Um, the choices that you would have to make is, of course, do you focus on just the energy or do you bundle it in with, you know, broader issues with economic trade? Is, you know, if you if you make a trade deal, um, focus explicitly more on, on, on the energy com component, yes or no. Um, should you focus on a specific country, country policy, or is it more regional policy type of focus? Uh, so so there, there are quite a bit of, of choices to make. Um, and I think in that sense, when it comes to energy, well, diplomacy, it, it, it has its role, right? I mean, it, it's, 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 I think it, it, when you, when you look at, if you want to make this transition work, we have to make sure we have the resources for it and we have to have strategic partners, which, which we can rely on that we will have a continuous flow, uh, of, uh, of, of, uh, of resources. And I, I think, and I think this this might be actually a, a strength from, from if you, if you are Europe, you have your energy you know companies, major energy companies who can go there themselves. They can go in tandem with uh, policy, and policymakers themselves can make deals. So there's there's a there's a rich repertoire. The question is, what do you want? You know, what should you prioritize? You can't just go out there and try to do everything everywhere. And then you get this type of what we have been in the past is project-based things. We do one thing here, and then there's a bit of money there. We go to Kazakhstan for this, and we go to uh, Libya for that. That that's not really a strategy. That's just a sales policy. That's that's my criticism on on EU policy sometimes because that's just doing a bit here, doing a bit there, ticking off the boxes. Yes, it's good for the climate, but it's it's not a geopolitical strategy. You might think, why not invest more specifically? In our direct partners, like we said before, like in Northern Africa, we say, okay, but these these are our neighbors. We don't want their neighbors to be poor or or suffering because you know you don't sleep well if you if your neighbor's house is burning essentially, and hence um, perhaps we put more money into that in, in, instead of other areas in the world where we most likely you know will be will be will be difficult to get the Chinese out or outcompete them or whatever, and and that is that is this I don't see that strategy being made just yet very consciously and perhaps this is because europe is you know 27 countries uh, instead of one actor um but i see more happening in terms of clear strategies and, and critical materials rather than uh, uh anywhere else when it comes to you know uh, big energy strategies i mean we, we used to have this desert tech type of idea uh, and, and and you know what what really happened to it it was not a bad idea it was just badly implemented i guess you know, at least not implemented at all. Again. When when you speak about the geopolitical strategy and energy transition, there is a natural outcome of this, it, and it it is basically a geopolitical cooperation. Can we say like in which form that geopolitical cooperation might be among countries or between countries? when it comes to energy transition, because I personally experienced that many times people speak about geopolitical cooperation, but when I ask, but what does it mean? In which form or, or based on what? You know, then we don't have that many answers. So what's your opinion about geopolitical cooperation and its forms? You could say, you know, there will be, in a way, new natural partners, Countries which want to sell solar energy and perhaps, you know, countries that want to buy the electricity from it. Uh, we used to always think that there is a natural uh, uh, synergy between, let's say, northern and southern Europe, where there's wind on the one end and there's solar on the southern end. And when the wind is blowing here and, you know, for large distances, it all equals out. And hence, renewable energy would have a tendency to uh, make use of those efficiencies to lower costs and so that that would be one logical possibility. Yeah. Buyers and sellers always like to find each other. I'm not sure this is a strategic alliance, but you could turn something into a uh, you know, not so much of an, a global market type of thing, but where countries make long-term agreements in order to supply things. You could also argue 
in the one hand, you know, new competition would be likely to arise between those countries trying to sell clean energy technologies. Yeah, they are set to set to clash. Does this mean that the US and EU will be at war soon? <laughs> Perhaps not. Yeah, there, there are other issues that play a, a bigger role. And energy is just a small part, let's say, of the global geopolitics. And, and, and there you see more that, you know, on the one hand, there's a Chinese more dominated uh, sphere of influence in the globe, in global markets, and there's a more Western sphere, US-led, you have to say. And, and that is overarching at this moment. What is what is also true is that we, there's a lot of infrastructure still, let's say, in place, which I mean, it comes to oil and gas, which runs in specific directions. So if you have typically in Russia, you know, the oil, the gas pipelines always run from Urals and, and <laughs> all the way to Europe, uh, which have now been somewhat severed. Uh, but the ones in East Asia, they always run to, you know, they go to China and Japan and so on. And so you're always stuck with specific infrastructure that kind of enables or limits um, who your natural partners are. In that sense, hydrogen is very interesting because it kind of evades the interconnectivity of, of electricity grids that does open up possibilities for global trade and partnerships further away. Um, but you may, in the larger, uh, let's say, uh, uh, geopolitics, if, if you look at it, that you have a more Asian or, or Chinese-dominated world, or perhaps a more Indian subcontinent, and perhaps there's a is a more natural cooperation between the, the Anglo-Saxon and European and, and, let's say, Australia, the typical countries which are more open to, let's say, the, the free market trade type of ideals and have, have traditional historical ties that they, that they are natural partners for resources and, and final products in a way. But it's, it's hard to say at this point which trade relations between North and South will actually establish between the resource and, and, and the production and whether or not perhaps a few, you know, resource rich states will be able to avoid a similar mistake and, and try to at least make the final product themselves if they already have the resource, right? Because the, the margins on the processing and the final products tend to be much higher than on the, on the, on the critical materials themselves. So there it's, there it's very difficult to say. Um, but if, if you look at Europe, you could say, you know, we have a new energy reality, <laughs> but it was not the energy transition per se that has brought it about. Though you could also argue that European talk about the energy transition has led Russia to believe that its business model of selling oil and gas would come to an end sooner or later, and hence so on and so forth. But I, I, I don't think their invasion of, let's say, Ukraine is uh, is is <laughs> is because of that reason. Um, so, so it's hard. So when it comes to geopolitical cooperation, we are moving. I, I don't see this from the perspective of the energy transition. I see natural conflict between sellers of new technologies. I see natural uh, cooperation between buyers and sellers of resources and so on. Um, but I think the way this this global trade will look like in the future or, or partnerships is more determined by the uh, what we generally generally would call you know geopolitics, the, the real politics at play. There are also some critical regions uh, in terms of energy, so let's add the secu let's add security as another layer of, for our discussion. Do we have any regulations? Uh, do we have any agreements in order that, for instance, countries are not going to do this or that? Or it's completely unregulated? And we might expect some perhaps new conflicts emerging from the energy transition. I would say at this point, renewable energy in that sense is quite unregulated because it doesn't contain, you know, nuclear energy has the, the fuel for both the bombs and, and the energy. So it's that's why it is so heavily regulated. Um, the first regulations that you get are usually safety concerns, right? So the hydrogen vessels, ammonia, and all that, how to deal with it. But this, this is this is not geopolitics. This is more like a technicality that needs to be solved. But it's it's a means to have an international organization that looks and makes those standards, and perhaps even can check and enforce them. You might have that type of thing for like, like, like civil aviation has that. You know. But this this is not. I wouldn't call that a. Um, it's not a, 
a security matter at, at, at that point. When it comes to real security issues, um, I think it's it's you know what you see. You you could argue there are a couple of new critical pieces of infrastructure that are emerging. Whether these are specific, uh, uh, let's say, storage facilities or interconnectors, or, or you know, or, or the big wires uh, under this, was it on the seabed? You already see that you know. Russian submarines scouting the North Sea for where are the wires going for the wind turbines, where they are going onshore. I mean, they're all potential targets, but that's not very different from attacking a harbor, um, as you would do, for example, in in in, in you know, say in current conflict for fossil fuels or blocking the Strait of Hormuz. Um, I mean, this is very physical, and and that is real. This is just an extension of that logic. And you don't completely negate that. You could argue if every household at least has solar panels on their roofs, then at least the electricity is um, kind of saved or outside of the security realm, right? Because then people keep on working. But this this doesn't really solve the problem of everything heat-related. Uh, so for heat, we still are thinking about, you know, for a long time, natural gas was the transition fuel and perhaps hydrogen will be, in, you know, in a couple of years. And that that's that is still the same problem. You 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 would still have depots. You would still have vulnerable pieces of critical infrastructure that could be targeted. The um, the digitalization of energy is, is is similar in that regard. You know, it's it's not very different uh, from 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 the current system. I would say, though, that even if you have a very decentralized electricity grid, and, and a lot of people have their solar panels. If they're all connected via the internet or smart grids, then it is also quite, you know, it's it's a simple target, you would argue, right? You can push the button and, 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 and flatten it or somehow. I am not the expert in terms of uh, digital warfare, I'm afraid. Uh, from, from what everything, from, from what I hear, it should be relatively easy to sabotage electricity grids. At least that is what I'm always being, being told. Most of the time, my countries don't do it. Is because the other party can do the same to them, <laughs> so it's like a mutually assured destruction. Uh, but the the actual security risk, why why I would say it's less than with fossil fuels, is because if you are more uh, locally generating, at least domestically, so that that is one thing, you you're less reliant on all these global choke points that you currently have, and that is a, a huge lessening of security structures. Um, because for, for what reason do all of these countries, you know, like China or the US and, and Europe and have all these ports or these military harbors uh, across the Indian Ocean, which is far away from any national security threat, literally. But it's called national security because it's the oil flow and you don't want to have it interrupted. This should become much less eh, in, in that sense. Um, so it will be interesting to see if, 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 in 20, 30 years from now, you see actually less activities in uh, in, in patrolling uh, uh, the global trade routes because, you know, countries don't care as much if someone captures a, a, a tanker, which is you know, a big ship, which is carrying cars rather than oil for some reason. You know, when it's, when it's an oil tanker being uh, disrupted by Houthi, how is it, the Houthi rebels, then everybody is like, ah, it's <laughs> on edge. But if it's just a bunch of uh, plastics or whatever, you know, products, then who cares really, right? The last two questions I have, Daniel, and these are related to the research of geopolitics of energy transition. So the first question is, when you as a professor, you research this topic and you have your colleagues. So what are the trends in researching geopolitics of energy transition? And the second question, what would be your recommendation when junior researchers, maybe students or some of our viewers, they want to write article or they want to get into the geopolitics of energy transition research, what sort of approach uh, do you recommend? Maybe some tips that you, from your practice, uh, would like to express and uh, help them with this topic? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So for a long time, uh, you know, I started this 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 working on this field uh, on this topic. Sorry, around 2011 or so. And at that point, I always said, you know, <laughs> the people on energy security or geopolitics of energy were all working on 
and let's say the unconventional, uh, you know, shale gas, unconventional oil, this type of things. This was new, and it was up in North America. It was a new producer, and, and what, how would it change things, relations with the Middle East and on? And they didn't really focus that much on renewables. And the guys on renewables, they were focusing on the transition, you know, transition literature, how to get there and how to push it and what type of market mechanisms or other mechanisms should be used to promote it. Um, in many ways, you still see that divide somewhat. You know, the geopolitics of renewables or the energy transition, it has matured. There is more and more being published on it, but it is nowhere near yet the you know, the amount of, of research that is going into oil and gas type of when it comes to security matters. And, and that's a bit of a pity. Uh, I do think when it comes to, th there's a lot of work actually, which I see currently, uh, it's on the just transition or, or things like that. But this is also not exactly the same. It's not geopolitics. And it it really depends where you look at. There's a there's an a lot of research also on climate and environmental geopolitics, which I see more and more, but it's not specifically targeting you know uh, energy per se. Uh, political geography is from ancient times already been interested in geopolitics in a way, but not necessarily from an energy or international relations uh, issue. So it's when I was looking at how to frame. The first time I worked on it, there was no framework readily available to to do an analysis with. So you, you start to put stuff together, and I have always focused more on how the energy transition changes energy relations rather than how geopolitics that kind of uh, changes the speed and direction of the transition. So the opposite causality. Um, but I I kind of took the approach that I was very pragmatic and wouldn't be bound by specific theories. As such, I've always held the view that when it comes to international relations, people always ask you, are you a constructivist or are you a realist or whatever, or classical geopolitician or, or, or critical geopolitics. <clears throat> I have really avoided that. And I just look at the research question. And if the research question is such the way I have it, when I really look, look at the geographic and technical characteristics of renewables and think what might happen, then classical geopolitics or something might fits better. But if I want to frame, you know, talk about how countries are framing the energy transition, for example, some see, you know, natural gas still as a transition fuel. This is framing, you know, the more critical approaches are very useful in discourse analysis. So I would always suggest don't be dogmatic. Don't, even if all your professors at your university are from one camp or the other, you know, keep an open mind to what works. Um, <clears throat> having said that, what should we do more? What are interesting avenues for research? Uh, so in, in, in the handbook, actually, I, I point out three avenues. One is much more on the theoretical side. So how should we study this phenomenon? I, I have my own ideas about a framework, of course, but so does every academic, I guess. <laughs> um, but the, uh, there's still a lot, of, a lot of work to be done on how do we conceptualize energy security, for example, for renewable energy. Because most of the concepts are based on oil and gas type of notions. And the same with, 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 with you know, just in general, the whole phenomenon. The other one was we need more empirical studies. That's difficult at the moment. We are living in a world that is still, you know, fossil fuel based, as we said. So, you know, what is a good case to study? Now, usually you want to know the impact of renewable energy. For example, you study a country before and after uh, a huge increase, a sizable increase in their energy mix of renewable energy and see how this affects their foreign relations. Yeah, that, that's the way to go. And last, I think, which which is very interesting is the uh, simply you know opportunities for governance. We already talked about how difficult it is, and there's no real global energy governance going on for such an important, actually, uh, means. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of things which 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 we could still do, and we we have developed a simulation game uh, for students to play, and perhaps in the future it's more also for practitioners as a sort of uh, training tool. Where you know you, you play the role of a country that has to abate climate change, but also make sure that you don't uh, forget about your energy security and industrial interests, basically, right? To balance that, and you hope kind of that you come up with a number of of of, of tricks, like we are trying to do with climate change. You know how to how do we govern this in a way that it works? And there's there's a lot of uh, uh, potential still there. There's also, and you see that less, 
a lot of potential is on the impact of geopolitics on the transition, so the other causality, which is still a bit understudied. You know, how does it change? I mean, if China is so dominant in in all things electric, you know, um, is that the reason why Japan and Europe and other countries are so happy with hydrogen? Or is that just because we need hydrogen? You know, how, how, what 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 happens? What is here? What is the the main driver for this push towards hydrogen? And the last one, which I want to focus a bit more on myself, is actually a bit of a hidden transition that is going on behind the scenes, I guess, and that is the energy transition is synonymous with the supply side, right? It's it's new sources, new technologies, production generation technologies, which are different and. But on the demand side, you also see slowly but surely a shift from the global north, let's say traditional markets, to the global south, which are becoming more and increasingly uh, have an increasing share of global demand. And how is this going to impact global energy relations? And that that is something which I feel feel is still a bit understudied. So there there's plenty of stuff to do, and I would anyway suggest. I think we we in the first works there were all this overarching, this overview, all these issues. I think it's. It's also time now to focus a bit more on one specific of these eight that I mentioned in the beginning and zoom in and go deeper rather than having you know yet another overview, which you know I kind of feel like I'm done with that. I want to move on, dig a bit deeper here and there. Daniel, thank you very much for your insightful thoughts and remarks about the geopolitics of energy transition. I'm sure that this topic will be in the center of international relations research in the upcoming years. So thank you again for being on IR Thinking. It was my pleasure to be there and contribute.